Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm a professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. Today, our guest is Mila Atmos, host of another Democracy Group podcast, Future Hindsight. The Future Hindsight website describes Mila as a global citizen based in New York City, and she has a background in international affairs with bachelor's and master's degrees from Columbia University. She's interviewed an impressive array of writers, thinkers, and activists on a wide range of topics, emphasizing what citizens can do to improve our lives. And we're going to talk to her about all sorts of topics, the the art of podcasting, how it can save the world, how we can save the world. Welcome, Mila. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So I actually want to talk to you about how you came into podcasting and where the name of your podcast, Future Hindsight, comes from. Right. So the name came from a conversation I had with my brother. We were having lunch and I said, oh, you know, I really want to do this project. I want to do a podcast and uh, I really want to think about myself in the future, looking back at the present uh, as someone who did something. And he goes, oh, that's called future hindsight. I thought, what? Oh, it's awesome. (laughs) So I said, I'm going to borrow that name. And I'm going to call my podcast Future Hindsight. And so in keeping with that spirit of thinking of ourselves in the future as someone who has been a good participant in civic life and democracy, I wanted to create a show that helped everyday people think of themselves and act on that vision as citizen change makers, people who really were able to, not just able to, but, you know, decided to roll up their sleeves and um, get in there, participate in civic life. I'm convinced, I continue to be convinced of this. And now that I have been doing the podcast for five years, I'm even more convinced than in the beginning, that our civic life depends on our civic participation. So it's so great to have someone to to talk uh, podcasting with. And um, our, you know, democracy group has such a rich array of different kinds of podcasts. I'm curious what you think is the unique advantage of podcasting for hosting conversations in this sort of improving democracy and civic life kind of space. I don't know if podcasting has a unique advantage. What I like about the medium is that it's really intimate, that, you know, it's a conversation between a guest and me and the listener. And I feel like it lends itself to living in the brain space of the listener, I think. Uh, So, for example, I listen to other podcasts normally when I am cooking or putting on makeup, and I kind of feel like I'm in this private realm where I'm with my thoughts. And I think that's a great place to think about something different, something new, uh, and to think about big ideas. 
Great. So I want to ask one more question about civic life before I hand it over to James to ask some questions. And I want to move kind of into your kind of main interest that you delve into on your podcast. You've had such a wide array of different kinds of guests. I'm curious if you've come away with a kind of central threat that you perceive as being the main thing that might undermine American civic life. I think the central threat is that we as citizens in this country, in the United States, cease to believe that democracy is worth it. And that, that there is a deep cynicism about our role as citizens and about the value of democracy as being the optimal way to achieve a society in which we all want to live. Yeah, that's that that makes a lot of sense, um, unfortunately. All right, James, I'm going to hand it over to you for a couple questions. Yeah, no, this is really interesting. And thank you so much. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I encourage the listeners to... Uh, to check it out. And Julia, I want to answer your first question. Are you, you know, maybe we should be thinking about a musical instead of our politics in question podcast, like politics in question, the musical, and we can sing and dance about existential, political, theoretical questions. I think it's a no brainer. So I'm sign me up, if you will. <laughs> I totally agree. I mean, think about Hamilton, right? I mean, it has Hamilton, the musical has really, I think, invigorated an imagination about our nation that we, I think, did not possess before. That's so true. And, you know, when we think about the founding more generally, we tell ourselves stories about the founding. We tell ourselves stories about it. That's why we talk about Alexander Hamilton. That's why we talk about George Washington. And we talk about, throughout American history, pivotal players, pivotal people, or movements, or moments in time, like the Civil Rights Movement, like the Montgomery Bus Boycott, for instance, the Children's Crusade in Birmingham. We talk about these because they lend themselves to stories, to us communicating something of value. And I think the podcasting medium is an effective medium for this because in a way, it, it gives people permission to listen to stories and to think about things in a long-form way, almost while they're doing other things, right? And in our modern lives, whether you're folding the laundry or doing the dishes or driving to work, or I like to fly fish in the front yard when I'm practicing casting and I'll listen to podcasts there too. You know, we're all doing things, some of which may not be as important as practicing your fly casting. But podcasting, I think, gives us an opportunity to engage with these stories in spaces where we otherwise wouldn't, where we don't have time to carve out a couple of hours to go to a theater and sit down or to sit down on the sofa or your favorite chair and read a long form piece in the New Yorker that may be 8,000 words or however long they are. They seem pretty long, but I like them. So I think that's to answer your question. And, and Mila, that's what I was the kind of back and forth there. That's how I was thinking about it, at least. Yeah, I totally agree. So I like the podcast. I like the theme of the podcast. I like the questions. I like the whole idea of, of reinvigorating our civic life. Because as we, you know, we had um, in a past episode, this notion of extraordinary, ordinary individuals, because ultimately that's what politics is about, of what self-government is about. It's about people engaging in politics 
to make collective decisions. Ordinary people. Because there's only two ways to make those collective decisions. One way is violence. The other way is politics, right? That's it. That's all we have. And I think we can all agree that we would rather not see violence as a way to make our collective decisions. But I guess my first question is, what keeps you up at night when it comes to the state of our civic participatory democracy? You know, and I know you think about democracy as something worth saving, but I was wondering if you could put a finer point on it, if you would. I have I, I have an idea, but I want to see if I want to push you just a little bit on that before I kind of ask you about my idea. I think what keeps me up at night is that there are competing forces right now for what it means to be in a democracy in this country. And that, let's say, that the more militant and violent faction in the United States will win. And I think their vision for a future of America is something that is not a multiracial democracy. And the reason why a multiracial democracy is important to me is because I am not white. And I have lived in this country since 1987. And I will tell you that it is less comfortable today in the year 2023 than it was in 1987. I think in 1987, it was sort of like, oh, Mila is Asian, and it was a little bit like a novelty. I came here as an exchange student, and I lived in a small rural village in Idaho, and the people were incredibly warm and welcoming. And I believe to this day that this community that welcomed me with open arms made me love this country. And it's one of the reasons I'm in this country. But today, living in New York City, I feel like, you know, I have to be really vigilant on the street, in the subway, in a way that I just didn't have to be a long time ago. And I think that's really problematic. Right. And thank you for, for sharing that, because I think that's true. And it highlights a really important point, which is that we aren't on some rectilinear like path towards of progress towards a promised land where there is no backtracking, where there the whole idea of backtracking, right? Where there's no notion that, you know, things are only getting better from here. I think that's wrong. And I think that it highlights for people, regardless of what they see as important, it highlights the importance of their participating in politics to make that happen, right? Because you can't take it for granted. But I, you know, I think one, I want to unpack this a little bit and take a step back. As I see it, and I've mentioned this a lot on the podcast, we have this conventional view of politics in, in the West today. It's, it's like a post-political vision. I think Chantel Mouffe calls it that. And, you know, I'm a traditionalist conservative, and I find myself agreeing with kind of post-Marxist, post-structuralist, like, you know, you know, thinkers on the left in Europe these days. It's really interesting. Um, and it's like I find myself nodding and underlining like every single page of their books. But when I think about how we got to this point, and it increasingly see, as I see it, is that we think about politics differently today. That we basically, in, in the pro-democracy movement, uh, and, I, and I love the pro-democracy movement, I have many friends there, I do work there, I'm part of it myself, we are the podcast. But I think oftentimes what happens is that when we talk about democracy, we have in, in mind a certain set of outcomes and decisions, and that we then say anything that runs counter to those outcomes or decisions is therefore not legitimate. 
And I think increasingly, not just with the pro-democracy movement, but in general, most people these days tend to approach politics and think about politics in a moralistic register. What does that mean? It means that they're thinking about it in terms of good and evil, legitimate or illegitimate. You know, we've come a long way from the days where John Quincy Adams would ask John C. Calhoun to be a pallbearer at his funeral. I mean, think about that. John C. Calhoun argues for the moral good of slavery. John Quincy Adams is a very determined opponent of slavery and a proponent of abolition. They are on the opposite sides of what is possibly the most contentious issue in American history. And John Quincy Adams says, I want John C. Calhoun to be a pallbearer at my funeral. That Just to wrap our heads around that for a second, it's hard for us to imagine why or that John C. Calhoun and Daniel Webster can be allies right, on many things, that, but they can respect each other even when they disagree. And I think what that does is it highlights the extent to which we have declare anyone who disagrees with us, and I do it too. I've done it for a long time when I was working on Capitol Hill as well. As is someone is somehow they're not legitimate that they don't get to participate in this circle of political conflict. When in reality, I think, to me at least, it seems that you know some decisions are beyond the pale, and so and I think those decisions are those things that would undermine or destroy the institutions where we have to make these other decisions. And I apologize for kind of going on a little rant here, but I, I've i been wrestling with this a lot and I wanted to see if you would just react to that. And if you think I'm wrong, just tell me because I need somebody to tell me if I'm wrong. Don't let me keep going around talking about this or else people aren't going to think that I know what I'm talking about. Well, I would say that that's why the focus of my podcast is on civic engagement, because I think if we talk about you know, these forces where we are no longer practicing politics in the public sphere, meaning between politicians, you know, your example between Calhoun and Adams, you know, we don't have that now. But we do have it actually in everyday life. Like I have friends, truly, I have friends who voted for the previous president and who fervently believe in America first. But they also are the people who have helped me when my children are sick or I need a ride somewhere, you know, like, and we have dinner and we have known them forever. This hasn't changed. I mean, I know that people have broken up with friends over the Trump election, but that has not been the case for me. And I think that if we can remember that on an everyday basis among people, everyday people, then I think we have a better opportunity. I think, you know, I listened to one of your podcasts about politicians having to perform actually sort of their politics out in the public, because that is then proving to their constituents that they're doing the work that they were sent to their public office to do. You know, they were elected on whatever platform. So now they have to actually publicly do that and tell their constituents on TV or on the radio or wherever they are to say, oh, you know, I'm for small government. So I fought this budget. But I think every day, day to day, we don't have to do that. We can come together and advocate for the things that we really actually want. And I think in New York, one of the big examples I would say is the community board that is coming together to fight the plan for Penn Station. And all sorts of constituents are coming together there on the community board level, which is to say tenants, landlords, transportation advocates. All this to say, 
it's sort of unlikely allies, you know. Tenants and landlords don't normally band together. But in this case, they're all committed to achieving an outcome that is not dictated by one person who would benefit from Penn Station being developed a specific way. I want to just push you just a little bit more here, and I'll turn it back to Julia. But I think the hardest part of democracy or the hardest part of self-government is when people don't agree, right? Derrida says that we negotiate the non-negotiable, right? That's what we do in Congress. That's what we do in politics at the national level, is that we negotiate over those things that we have that are very, very important to us, that we may think that are existential, that if they don't go the way we want, it's like the world's going to die or the terrorists are going to win or whatever it may be. And it's not, and I do not mean for a second to devalue anyone's uh, policy views or their feelings here. That's not my point. My point is that when we engage in those debates, politics becomes really, really hard, right? But what we often do, though, today to win is that we kind of engage in this abstract negation where we, you know, we say, and just, and I'm not I'm not suggesting this is what you are doing. I'm just going to use it as an example of like, because I hear it a lot about like Trump and, and make America great or America first. And that's, there's stuff underneath that, that that represents. But oftentimes it just stops there. And again, I'm not suggesting that's what you are doing, but because I've listened to your podcast and I really, really like it. I think it's good because it dives into these things in detail. But all too often in just a normal course of event, and the right does it too with the woke left, right? I mean, it's just two sides of the same coin. And what we're ultimately trying to do is to negate one another and to say that you aren't allowed to participate so long as you have those views. And I find this very puzzling because when I look back in American history at times where the conflict was much greater, the issues seem to be a lot more intense. If we just look to the 60s, for instance, if we look to the civil rights movement of the late 50s and 60s, Dr. King knows that no amount of Supreme Court cases uh, is, are going to give him what he wants, right? The president, you can't send in the guard everywhere. It's just not going to work. There's only one way to ultimately get the kind of change he wants, and that is to persuade white Southerners that they are wrong. It's remarkable. He, is, he speaks in these very righteous terms of justice and injustice, but he never calls them evil. He never says that they're illiberal and that they, they are authoritarian and they don't get to participate. Why? Because he's trying to persuade them. You see the same thing with the suffrage movement. The suffrage movement, they have to convince men who have the right to vote to vote to allow women to vote. So you don't hear about chauvinistic, you know, pigs. I mean, I'm sure this stuff is out there, but it's not the dominant narrative. But today, when you look at criticism, especially in the pro-democracy space of Trump, of Republicans, it's almost as if this is an illiberal, authoritarian, jackbooted thug of a president who is going to just ruin America if this stuff continues. So we have to either change the rules or figure out how to preclude people. And I'm painting with broad brush here to be provocative. And that, to me, that seems like it's just the other side of the coin and it, and it, and it stymies. It stymies that vigorous and contested and contentious kind of debate that we have seen throughout American history in our institutions. And yes, those institutions have not been as diverse as they are now, unfortunately. And yes, they have precluded a lot of people, but they still dealt with a lot of really intense issues. And they adjudicated those issues, albeit imperfectly over time, but they eventually were able to kind of, as King says, you know, you know, that arc of history bending towards justice. And so I guess how is it, how are, is what we're doing today falling short 
of that, right? I mean, why is it that today we seem to be paralyzed by the, I don't want to say small and insignificant because they're not, but by issues and conflicts that if you look at the level of conflict in the 60s and 70s in this nation, when Congress had its period of its like highest legislative productivity in its history, or if you look at when Congress is at the height of its power in foreign policy in the late 19th century and all the conflict that's happening and disagreement. I mean, they're literally slugging it out, fighting on the House and Senate floors during this period or during the pre-Annibellum or in the Annibellum era when they're really debating these big issues like slavery. And then ultimately they're resolving them or in the case of slavery, not. And then you have a civil war. But how is it that what we're doing today, we just somehow can't make it happen? Is it different than how I'm thinking about it? Or are the issues different? Are we different? What's going on here? There, I mean, I think there's so many thoughts I have here. Uh, the first is, I think, the people who are trying to change rules are not Democrats. I think they, uh, in recent in the recent news cycle, let's say they like to bring a knife to a gunfight. So it's uh, very disconcerting, I think, for people on the left. But I think we are different. I think we are different people today than we were in the 60s. And there are so many reasons for that. I think one is that we don't have the same kind of standards for politicians anymore. I would say the most toxic conversations are out in the public between politicians. Like I mentioned, I have friends who voted for Trump, but I don't talk to them in this way, and they don't talk back to me in this way either. We don't, quote, cancel each other out or anything like this. You know, so I think the fact that we continue to vote for people who are so divisive, that's a problem. I think people have also felt so powerless to unseat them because of voter suppression or gerrymandering that they can't get the people who are not actually representing their views out of office. That's really problematic. I mean, even look at George Santos. He has been asked to resign from both sides of the aisle. The people who elected him have deep regrets. I actually, just by chance, was uh, at a birthday party in Glen Cove, New York, uh, after he was elected and before he took office. And I spoke to a woman who said to me, you know, I feel really sheepish that I didn't do my own research uh, because I voted for George Santos. And uh, this was in the wake of hearing that actually the local news had covered him in a way that maybe in the bigger or in the bigger metro area we, didn't he- we did not hear about. And she says, yes, the newspaper that I read, the local newspaper that I read, they actually recommended against him, but I voted for him anyway. And I was like, Hmm, yes. (laughs) And I wanted to say to her, why? Why did you do that? If the paper that you trust tells you that this person is not somebody that you should be voting for, but you're doing it anyway. So I kind of feel like as the public, there is a kind of attitude that we know better than maybe experts, but we don't actually want to do the research. (laughs) We don't actually want to educate ourselves properly to make these kinds of decisions and and I think that's that's a big difference between today and the 60s. I think people in the 60s, the way that I understand it from reading history, is that they really cared uh, in a way that they got themselves, you know, really informed and were willing to go out there and fight for what they thought was right. And I think today that's maybe true only for some of us and not others. And by that, I mean people who are, you know, people on the right. I think they're really in there to fight for what they want. Hmm, that's interesting. 
So I kind of wanted to return um, to a couple of, of themes that that we've raised and kind of talk about this democracy reform space. And I also appreciate you sharing your story about your experiences living in the United States. And I think I've heard this from other from other people as well. This feels like a tenser and more threatening place for people who aren't white, um, that it feels like a you know, a, a tenser moment than the 1980s or even than, than some, you know, periods previous to that, to the 1960s, although that seems unlikely um, given the tensions in that decade. But the, um, the thing that I wanted to ask about is how we sort of square that, that sense of rising threat and of sort of declining commitment to democracy with the other kind of central piece of what you've emphasized and you've had a number of guests on your podcast who've emphasized is sort of talking to people i mean you you had some experts on independent politics and they talked about moving to the center and you pushed them a little bit on that but i'm curious about just sort of generally in the democracy reform space you know how should we think about this tension between on the one hand this growing consensus of the main threats in the united states come broadly speaking from the right not from every republican not from thoughtful people like james um who who think about these issues very deeply and care about other americans but that broadly speaking there's only one party that stormed the Capitol when it wasn't happy with the election result. That there's, you know, that these threats to non-white individuals are being amplified on one side and really, you know, not on the other. That the other that other side isn't perfect, but it isn't amplifying these threats. Um, and on the other hand, we have this sort of imperative in the in the democracy reform space to build a, a big tent. That obviously strategic reasons for that. Um, we have this imperative to remain nonpartisan and impartial. And I. Uh, try to be really sensitive to that. I teach on a very, very politically mixed campus. But on the other hand, it's really hard to do um, in in tension with this other situation. And I'm curious if you have thoughts about that. And also if maybe if doing your podcast has changed how you think about that tension. Well, I would say the time to be impartial is over. And what I mean by that is that we have to be really outspoken about being pro-democracy and calling out people when they are not being pro-democracy. Because Americans love, love to pride themselves for being the beacon of democracy in the world. And if we tolerate amongst ourselves people who are anti-democracy, how can I say? We're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know, I just kind of feel like if we continue to say, to say that we're being impartial and we're going to take people at their word and just, uh, you know, say, well, we disagree on this tactic, when actually their tactic is plainly undemocratic, for example, the January 6th insurrection, when people say, oh, it's it's a form of discourse. No, it's not a form of discourse. And when we give that kind of uh, talking point credence, I think we are muddying the waters and we are hurting ourselves and we are not making plain what the stakes are for democracy writ large and for democracy in the United States. And so I think we cannot be impartial about that. Either we are pro-democracy or we're not. And there are many Republicans who are pro-democracy, but in this moment, the Republican Party is captured by the anti-democracy faction. So I actually want to 
take us in a slightly different direction before we bring things home, because I was really fascinated by on your podcast um, is, you know, we've talked a lot about the political threats to democracy, but you also have a lot of people on who want to talk about capitalism and uh, kind of how the the economy fits into threats to democracy. And so I'm curious if you have thoughts on that about where these kind of critiques of capitalism meet with some of your concerns about civic participation and how these kinds of economics conversations fit into our broad, uh, broadly conceived pro-democracy space. You know, I want to know <laughs> the answer to this question myself, but I do have some initial thoughts here about the intersection of democracy and capitalism. I think that certain ways of practicing capitalism are not conducive to democracy. And actually, I would say there are a lot of ways in this country capitalism is practiced in a way that is, in fact, just plain corrupt. And I think when that happens, then it's really undemocratic. And I think about, for example, the way that being poor essentially is punitive in this country. You know, that if you are, for a simple example, if you are banking with Chase Bank and you don't have a big bank account, you get charged a monthly fee. But if you have enough money, according to whatever the threshold is, you get free checking, free savings. And that's not capitalism, I think. Or it isn't fair in any case. And so I think when you look at those simple things, it makes a huge difference. And I think then you make it really difficult for people who are not well off to participate in democracy because they think, first of all, it's incredibly unfair. And why should they trust the system that's clearly discriminating against them merely for the fact that they don't have a lot of money in the bank? Great. So I want to kind of turn us back to civic engagement as we come up on the end of our show and ask you a little bit about how we get people involved in the political system or in civic life in this moment of political turmoil. And if you have any sense of what political models of engagement are working and, and what are some maybe some limitations of new models of civic engagement? I think there aren't really a lot of new models of civic engagement. I would say that we just have to get people to turn out to get engaged. And that can be so many things. I think a lot of people think that um, it has to be political. And, and I disagree with that. I think civic engagement can be something that's purely community-based. For example, you can participate in the soup kitchen. You can give to the homeless. Get involved in things that really affect everyday people directly as opposed to necessarily get involved in something political. You know, I think people talk about school boards, but that, of course, is political. And I think as long as you do that, it makes a big difference. Because I think when you are involved in your immediate community, you really understand what the people in your community care about. You're being a good neighbor, and I think that makes a big difference. And And I think being a good neighbor, you know, being interested in what's important to your neighbors is huge. And I'm, you know, a big proponent, of course, of local and state politics. People don't really know what's happening. You know, I live in New York City, as you mentioned at the top, where the mayoral election in 2021 rendered something like 21% 
of eligible voters to turn out and vote for mayor. I love to ask cab drivers if they voted for mayor, and I would say nine out of 10 will tell me no. And then they'll say, oh, but I voted for Biden. And it almost makes me want to cry because it's good that they voted for president, but it would be even better if they also voted for mayor because that's, that's the office, the mayoral office. That's the office that truly affects their everyday lives, especially if you're a cab driver. And I think that's the kind of thing for people, we just have to pound the table to get people involved. And in the case of maybe mayoral elections, I think in New York City, we should change them to a presidential year so that people turn out because in New York City, presidential elections have about a 65% turnout, but because mayoral elections are in an off year, nobody turns out, nobody even understands it's happening. And I think that's really bad. Thank you. Yeah, you, you couldn't see me, but I was nodding vigorously at the idea of, uh, of having local elections on a presidential year. I live in a state where we have all sorts of off-year elections and with incredibly low turnout. I think that's really important. Well, I think this um, has been a really engaging conversation. I'm really happy you could join us. And so I just want to encourage everyone to check out this Democracy Group podcast, Future Hindsight. It's a really fascinating podcast, and you can hear more from our uh, wonderful guest today, Mila Atmos. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.